0: Good evening. Good evening, welcome to the mine, we are so glad you're here, alright let's pray, Lord God we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here to fellowship together, to get into your word tonight, to worship you, we do thank you Lord that Seth is back with us tonight and Lord just continue to uh, Lord, heal his collarbone and just, uh, just continue to encourage him Lord as he leads in all the ministries that he uh, has around here at Cornerstone, Lord, just uh, help us to focus on You for the next uh, few minutes that we're together tonight. Encourage us, Lord, by Your Spirit and through Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, we're going to start there, and then we're going to go back real quickly to the book of Genesis. The theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is better. Better than anyone else or anything else, Christ is better. And if you study the book of Hebrews, you realize it is a tremendous encouragement. In fact, uh, 25% of all the times the word hope is used in the New Testament, it's used in the book of Hebrews. It's a very encouraging, hopeful book. Because remember, the group of people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, is a group of first century Christians who are really under tremendous pressure to give up and to give in. They're enduring a lot of persecution, they're enduring a lot of trial, a lot of stuff going on in their life. And they're about ready to give up and say, I I can't go on anymore. So the writer of Hebrews has been encouraged by the Spirit of God to write this letter to these folks as a tremendous encouragement to them to keep on keeping on and God is certainly using that today as well, because He wants to encourage us, because we deal with the same things. Sometimes we have tremendous trials and things that we're dealing with, and sometimes we feel like, God, I can't go on one more day, I can't take one more step, whatever. And so there is so much encouragement here, and one of the greatest encouragements is just to remember that Christ is better. And we're going to talk about that tonight in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, looking at different aspects of why Christ is better. But I want to begin just looking again at this character we've been introduced to called Melchizedek in chapter 7. And the Bible says there in Hebrews 7, verse 1, that this Melchizedek met Abraham, the great father of the Jewish nation, after he had defeated the kings and blessed him. I just wanted to throw this out tonight, and that is be aware of divine appointments. That Melchizedek meeting Abraham and blessing him was no accident. It was no coincidence. It was a divine appointment. God was orchestrating it so that these two great men could meet one day, and primarily God wanted to hook them up so that Melchizedek could bless Abraham. And the only reason I bring that out for practical application to you and I is, God has some divine appointments for us in our lives. And we have to be sensitive throughout our day that the people that God brings into our life and across our path, it's not an accident that God brings those people across our path. They are there by divine appointment. And God wants us, like Melchizedek, to be a blessing to them. To be a blessing to them. Now, with that said, I want us to go back to where this in Hebrews 7, where this is taken from. So if you go back to the book of Genesis, keep your finger there in Hebrews 7, we're going to be coming right back there in just a few few minutes, and go back to the book of Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, and go over with me to verse 18. Genesis 14, verse 18. By the way, I don't know what your impressions of Abraham was before this, but if you read Genesis 14, you find out that Abraham was no wimp. He was a warrior. In fact, the Bible tells us here in Genesis 14 that him and like 300 and some people defeated four kings and their armies. That's pretty impressive. Now, we're going to find out they didn't do that on their own, in their own strength. They did that because God delivered them into Abraham's hands. But you'll notice there in Genesis 14:18 that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abram saying, "Blessed be Abram by the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth." Now notice this verse, verse 20, "Worthy of praise is the Most High God who delivered your enemies into your hand." Then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Um I wanted to concentrate there just for a second on verse 20. That God delivered your enemies into your hand. Because God is interested in taking away from our lives anything that's going to impede us from being all that God created us to be. Now here, this is physical enemies. I realize that. But we have to understand that God is willing to deliver us and and provide victory for us over any enemy that is holding us back spiritually from enjoying the fellowship that God wants us to have with Him. So be aware of that. We're going to come back to that point. I don't know what enemy and what thing you may be struggling with, whether it may be a a habit or whatever, but I just want you to know that our Most High God is able to deliver any enemy over into our hands so that we don't have those enemies holding us back any longer. And then I love, if you go down to uh, chapter 15, after these things, the Word of the Lord came. Now, the book of Genesis is the book of firsts or beginnings. This is the first time in the Bible that it says the Word of the Lord came to somebody, anybody. The Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Here's another first. The first time in the Bible you see this very familiar phrase, fear not. God comes to Abram and says, Fear not, Abram. Here's why. I am your shield, and I am also your reward. I love that. God says, I am your shield, and I am your reward. And I think Abram needed that encouragement from God. Because he had just defeated four kings and their powerful armies, and he might have been thinking in the back of his mind, Okay, I got victory over them today, but they could come back around at some point. I need a shield. And I love this word for shield in the Hebrew language here that God uses of Himself. It's not just this shield that, you know, some warriors in ancient times would carry in front of them to, like, ward off, you know. It was literally a shield that surrounds you completely. So that what God is basically saying is, Abram, nothing is going to get to you that I don't allow it to. It's just like you and I. The Bible says we are in the hands of God. And so for anything to get to us, it's got to first pass through the hands of God. And if it passes through His infinitely wise and loving hands, then we've got to conclude, based on faith, that it's there for a reason. And God is not trying to discourage us or destroy us with this, but to strengthen us and to help us to trust Him more. I am your shield. I am your reward. If you read the whole story in Genesis 14 and 15, you realize that Abram gave up a lot of this world's wealth to do what he did. And God is coming along and saying, don't fret about giving up all that worldly stuff. I'm your reward. And I'm here for you for the rest of eternity. And those earthly things, they can come and go. And like the Bible says, we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we're not going to carry anything out. So, that relationship with God is the most important thing. It's eternal. It's eternal. And as I've shared with you before, remember folks, there's only two things that we come in contact with on this side of glory in heaven that are eternal. People and their souls and the Word of God. Everything else that we come in contact with, that we touch, that we see, whatever, it's going to be left behind, decay, whatever. But people, their souls... And the Word of God. So that any investment that we make in other people and we make in the Word of God is an eternal investment. Now, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 7 for just a moment, and I sort of answered this question a couple of weeks ago, but I just want to reiterate, because some of you never heard of Melchizedek before the study of Hebrews. Who is Melchizedek? And yet you find out in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek was even greater than Abraham. Abraham, my goodness, who could be greater than Abraham? He was the father of the Jewish nation. But Melchizedek was greater because in Hebrews 7, we learn that the, because he blessed Abraham, he was actually greater than the one who received the blessing. In fact, you read that there in verse 7 of Hebrews 7. Now, without dispute, the inferior is always blessed by the superior. And so when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, it was a sign that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. The reason why God established Melchizedek and his priesthood, as I shared a couple weeks ago, is because Jews would have an objection about Christ's priesthood. Because as we learn, if you go up to verse uh, 14 of chapter 7, the writer says, It is clear that our Lord is descended from Judah. Yet Moses said nothing about priests in connection with that tribe. So when the New Testament began to teach that Jesus Christ was our priest, a Jew would say, whoa, 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 whoa. In the Old Testament, under Moses, the only people that could be priests were those who were related to Aaron, who could descend from Aaron. Jesus wasn't from the line of Aaron. He was from the line of Judah. But see, way back in the book of Genesis, God set up this independent order of priesthood. This guy named Melchizedek who was also not from the tribe of Aaron. But he was an independent priest. So that when Christ came along, the Bible taught that Christ, no, he wasn't a priest under the Aaronic line of priesthood in the Old Testament that was established by Moses in the law, but he predated that. He goes back and he ties in with Melchizedek. Now, some people believe that Melchizedek actually is Christ. I do not. I believe that because you'll notice, even though it has a lot of stuff about him in here, it says in verse 3 that Melchizedek was without father, mother, without genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. I mean, you could say, well, man, that sort of describes some kind of deity or some kind of divine being. I think all it's saying there is there was no record of his beginning. There was no record of his father. There was no record of his mother. There was no record of his ending. So he was a type of Christ, but he wasn't Christ. And here's the big reason why. Look at verse 3. He is, and here's the key word, like the Son of God. If God wanted to end all dispute about whether this actually was Jesus Christ in the Old Testament or not, He wouldn't have used the word like in verse 3. By using the word like... He is saying that Melchizedek was a type of priest who sets up this independent order of priesthood which Jesus Christ is going to come along and be under, in a sense, or over, if you look at it that way. And the whole reason, again, that he is using Melchizedek and talking about the priesthood is, remember, the priesthood of Jesus Christ to even us today should be a great encouragement. Because a priest is somebody who represents us before God somebody who's our bridge to God, somebody who's our go-between, somebody who's our advocate, somebody who's watching out for us and looking out for us and caring for our spiritual need. And so that's the whole concept of the priesthood of Christ. Now here's the thing, in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews, and we're going to get through all those four chapters tonight, we're just going to hit on the highlight of each chapter, I'll let you study it more in depth for yourself, each chapter has a particular aspect of Christ's priesthood that makes it better than the Old Testament priesthood of Aaron and Levi and their descendants. The first one, chapter 7, if you're going to do an outline or you're going to take notes, chapter 7 basically emphasizes the reason why Christ is a better priest than the Old Testament priest because His priesthood is permanent. Those priests died because they were human. And so you would always, you know, They would live maybe a while, but then they would die and somebody else would take their place. In fact, notice this. Go over to chapter 7. Look at verse 23. And others who became priests were numerous because death prevented them from continuing in office. But He, Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently since He lives forever. So He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Of course, we talked about that last week. One of the great encouragements for the Christian is that Jesus Christ, our priest, is always praying for us. Don't ever forget that. It's not like His ministry ended when He died on the cross and was buried and rose from the dead. No, His ministry continues today is that He's in heaven praying for you on a daily basis. So when things begin to get rough during the day or during the week, remember that Jesus is praying for you. But here's the key. His priesthood is permanent. He lives forever. In fact, I love this. Go up to uh, go up to verse 15 of chapter 7. And this is even clearer if another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not by a legal regulation about physical descent. You see, in the Old Testament economy, if you were in the line of Aaron, you became a priest. It didn't matter. You didn't have any choice. And you might not have been even that high of character and integrity or whatever, but, okay, I'm a descendant of Aaron. I gotta, that's what i got to do for him. I mean, you didn't have to worry about what you did. You know, you didn't have to worry about what God's will was for your life as far as occupation. If you were a descendant of Aaron in the Old Testament, you were a priest. That was it. You were a priest. He's saying, but again, that was okay, but this is so much better. Why? Because our high priest, Jesus Christ, notice, it's not about legal regulation, about physical descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is indestructible. He's indestructible. Well, that makes His priesthood better. He lives forever. He is your forever priest. In fact, look at verse 17 and then at the end of verse 21. You are a priest forever, God says, in the order of Melchizedek. The end of verse 21, the Lord has sworn God the Father and will not change His mind, saying about His Son Jesus, You are a priest forever. Here's what it is, folks. God's solutions to our problems are forever solutions. God is not the kind of God that puts a band-aid on something and tries to do something temporary to fix it. God's fixes are permanent fixes. God's fixes are eternal fixes. God's fixes are not temporary fixes. When God comes into our lives, He's going to, in a sense, be with us and shape us and care for us forever. He obligates Himself to a forever priesthood. So that later on in the book of Hebrews, that's why in chapter 13, it says about our high priest, Jesus, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. How good is that? You never have to worry about one minute of your life that Jesus Christ, your forever priest, isn't on the job. Looking out for you. Caring for you. Loving for you. Representing you before the Father. Praying for you. And it's all because He is our forever priest. The weakness of the Old Testament priests was because they were human. And they died. And then other priests had to come along and you had to get to know them. They had to get to know you. Yada, yada. Not Jesus. His priesthood is permanent. I love that. Permanent priesthood. No wonder then it says, like I said, look at uh, verse 19 of chapter 7. That's why he says here, the law made nothing perfect in the Old Testament. The law was good. He's not bashing the law. He's simply saying it wasn't God's purpose for the law to perfect anyone, to make them right before God. All the law did was show us we can't be right before God. I can't live up to that law. Right! So that should drive us to, to, to the God who wants a relationship with us because it's only through a relationship with Him that we can be right before God. See, God never intended for the law to be something that we try to work up to and we try to live up to in order to be good enough to God to go to heaven. No. The law was given to show us we can't live up to the law and so we need a priest, a high priest, a forever priest jesus wow what a great priest then in chapter 8 just real quick in chapter 8 the main emphasis isn't on the permanency of his priesthood it's on the point of his priesthood notice in verse one of chapter eight now the main point of what we are saying is this we have such a high priest one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven A minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set up. And he's basically again saying, hey, I'm not bashing the Old Testament, folks. Because everything that the New Testament is talking about was built on the foundation of the Old Testament. All he keeps saying is, but the Old Testament was inferior to what was brought in by Christ. It was better. It wasn't bad in the Old Testament it just didn't get done. Everything that God wanted to get done, it was a forerunner, if you will. Sort of like a John the Baptist. The Old Testament was a forerunner to the New Testament to when Christ would come and really bring in the ultimate solution. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to the ultimate solution, Jesus Christ. So he's saying here in chapter 7, it's permanent. That's what makes it better. In chapter 8 he's saying, and the point of it all is better. And here's why. If you read chapter 8, here's what he says. The Old Testament law, it was written on what? Stone, tablets. Moses goes up to the mountain. You know, the, you know Charlton Heston. You saw the movie. You know, the tablets. And he brings the tablets of stone down off the mountain. Alright? Okay, I'm sorry. We don't get our theology from the movie. Okay. Okay. Um, But that's where God wrote His law in the Old Testament, and that's okay, that was good. Nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments on stone. But in chapter 8, He says, but how much better when God writes His law, in a sense, in our heart. That's what Christ brought. Because it wasn't about an external thing, it was about internally doing a work inside our heart. And He says, isn't what God does in our heart when we open up our heart to Him, so much better than going around with these stone tablets. And then, He goes back to what we mentioned in chapter 7 about the fact, and guess what, folks? Those stone tablets could not give me the power to live up to the law of God. Again, because the law could make nothing perfect. When Jesus Christ came, our high priest, the point of His priesthood was this. He not only internalized the law of God in our hearts, He gives us the power, the grace, the strength to be able to live up to that of what God is saying to us. How can I obey the things that God asks me to do? How can I shun the things that are not good for me in my relationship with God? And how can I say yes to the good things? Because God empowers me. He empowers me in many ways through His Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through His church, through His people encouraging one another. So many ways He empowers us, but that's a power that the Old Testament believers did not have. If you study theology, you find out that the Holy Spirit would come upon people in the Old Testament, but He would not permanently indwell them in the Old Testament. That's why David, like in the Psalms, you read the Psalms and you see that Psalm where David says, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And some people are like, what's he saying there? Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go on people. Like if you read the book of Judges, Samson, you know, beats up 300 guys. You know, he's Samson, you know. he's Unlike me, he's got hair. And uh, the Holy Spirit would come upon him for those great acts of heroics and all of that. But then the Holy Spirit would come and go. When you and I accept Christ, the Bible says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, until the day we see Jesus. He's not this temporary dweller inside of us who comes for a while and leaves. No, under the new covenant that Jesus Christ ushered in, when you and I accept Christ, the Holy Spirit is our permanent, permanent friend inside of us. So again, just contrasting and comparing here in the book of Hebrews, that The Old Testament was good and there was a lot of good stuff there that God revealed and did and all of that. But what we have now through Christ is so much better. In chapter 9, I'm not going to take the time to go down through, but he begins in the first couple of verses to talk about the intricacies of the tabernacle and all that was there, Uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, Indiana Jones, the Ark. I'll never forget, that was what? 20, 25 years ago now, when that movie came out, um, I literally had Christians... Again, it just shows us we need to know our Bibles better. The only ark they knew of was Noah's ark. And so they were saying, well, Pastor Jeff, are they making a movie about Noah's ark? And I said, no, that's a different ark. This is the ark of the covenant. What's the ark of the covenant? I mean, you know, it's like, wow. You need to know the ark of the covenant. So anyway... Uh, Chapter 9 talks all about that kind of stuff. Alright? But notice it does say this. Don't focus too much on that stuff. In fact, at the end of verse 5 of chapter 9, he says, now is not the time to speak of these things in detail. Because that's not really why I'm writing is to get you all, you know, focused here on these Old Testament tabernacle things. I want you to focus on Jesus Christ. But here's his point in chapter 9. In chapter 7, it's permanent. In chapter 8, The point is that it's so much better because it's internal rather than external. It's all of these things. Then in chapter 9, here's the next thing. It's the heavenly sanctuary rather than anything on earth. And that's what he emphasizes here. The greatness of the sanctuary where Christ is ministering for us. In fact, notice in verse 23 of chapter 9, So it was necessary for the sketches of the things in heaven to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves required better sacrifices than these. For Christ, verse 24 of chapter 9 of Hebrews, did not enter a sanctuary made with hands. The representation of the true sanctuary, which was what was built in the Old Testament. No, He's entered heaven itself, and notice this, He appears now in God's presence for us. That's pretty cool. Heaven. So much better than the tabernacle on earth. Again, tabernacle on earth was good, it was cool, it served a purpose, it allowed the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, to represent them before God and all it was all good. But my goodness, this is so much better. As I shared last week, isn't it great to have a high priest who has that heavenly perspective? That, you know, our perspective on things and our life, it's like this big because this is all we can see is our little life and all that it affects. God sees the big picture. And just because God is in heaven doesn't mean He doesn't care and that He's so far away that He can't do it. No. In fact, being in heaven makes Him all the more capable because He's the Son of God. He's our great High Priest. And He is there in heaven. So, that's chapter 9. Then in chapter 10... The emphasis is on the power of His priesthood. Power meaning this. The Old Testament sacrifices could not take away sin. In fact, you know what? Let's just begin reading there. Just follow along with me as I read chapter 10, because this is pretty powerful. For the law possesses a shadow of the things to come, but not the reality. When Jesus Christ came, it wasn't shadows anymore. It was the reality and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect those who come to worship. They tell us that during Passover, in a one-week Passover time, that there would have been 300,000 lambs slaughtered around Jerusalem. That the blood of the lambs would be so thick running through the streets of Jerusalem, it would literally run out into these gullies that they had made and run into what's called the Kidron Valley. 300,000 lambs. Now, one reason why God said that the shedding of blood was necessary to deal with sin was because He wanted us, in one sense, to see how serious sin was. That this thing we call sin isn't something to be played around with. That this thing called sin is a very dangerous thing. And so, when God brought the whole sacrificial system into being, and then His own Son, the Son of God, comes and sacrifices Himself, it was to remind us just how serious a problem this is, but one that God was willing to, to deal with head on and say, I love you too much to ever let you go out into eternity without this relationship with Me, that I'm willing to even come and die for that. So notice, he goes on in to say in verse 3, in these Old Testament sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins year after year. Because these sacrifices were good in the sense that they were pointing towards the one ultimate sacrifice that would come. And in a sense, they would cover sin, but they didn't really deal with sin permanently. They didn't take care of sin because they couldn't take away sin. But, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. So I love this verse 5. This is one of the coolest parts of the whole Bible. Why? Because we get a glimpse into an actual conversation between God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Father. It's like, wow. God actually gives us a glimpse, in a sense, into this conversation that the Father and the Son are having. And notice, here's what the Son says to the Father. So when He, Jesus, came into the world, He said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. Whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you took no delight in. Not that He didn't take any delight, it just simply means it didn't deal with what needed to be dealt with and deal with it permanently. Then I said to God the Father, Here I am. I have come, it is written of Me in the scroll of the book, to do Your will O God. Again, in verse 9, Here I am, I have come to do Your will. So He does away with the first to establish the second. And because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was willing to take upon human flesh and come and be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, notice how powerful His priesthood is. Look at verse 10. By His will... The will of Jesus Christ. Because here's the other thing. Those lambs and those bulls and those goats and all those Old Testament sacrifices, they weren't willing sacrifices. It wasn't like these lambs were out there grazing and going, can I, can I be slaughtered? Can I be slaughtered? No. They were unwilling sacrifices. But the difference with Jesus Christ was He willingly sacrificed Himself for me and for you. He went to the cross not because, again, any human being took His life from Him. As He tells Pilate very clearly, I laid down My life. And He says that in John 10. He says the Good Shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. If you read the book, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis or saw the movie when Aslan, the lion, lays down His life. The witch didn't take Aslan's life. He laid it down willingly. There was a huge difference between the Old Testament sacrifices and his. So by his will, notice, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And here's a phrase that's used over and over again in the book of Hebrews, once for all. That's why Jesus doesn't have to keep coming back to earth and dying over and over and over and over again. Why? Why? Because of the power of His priesthood and the power of His sacrifice. He only had to die once and that was good enough to pay the entire debt of all sin of all time of every human being. I know that's it's like, wow. But notice it. I'll show it to you. If you go back to chapter 9, look at verse 15. And so Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance. You've got an eternal inheritance awaiting you, by the way. And the reason I know that is because He promised it to you and He's not going to lie. Since He died, notice this, to set them free from the violations committed under the first covenant. Your translation may use the word redeemed. Here's what that word means, or set free. It means that the price that Jesus paid because He was the ultimate sacrifice, paid the debt completely. It's like if we owed a debt, and after the sacrifice of Jesus, God just said, paid in full. Paid. Paid, paid, paid. Every sin that Jeff Royce has committed and will commit, paid in full. Unbelievable. Then notice this. If you go up to uh, verse 26, at the end of the verse he says, Now Jesus has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages, now notice, to put away sin by His sacrifice. And that concept in the original language means this, that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He has disarmed the power and the force of sin in our lives. So now, He not only has paid the debt in full, but He says, even though you've still got that struggle with sin on this side of heaven, you don't have to sin because the power that I give you can be enough to say no to sin. So that you don't have to let sin reign over you. You don't have to let that enemy in your life It's keeping you from being what God created you to be. You don't have to let that have victory over you. And let me show you that even better. Keep your finger there, because we're going to come right back to Hebrews. And go over to the book of Romans. And then I'm going to stop for a moment. I really am tonight. I just had a lot that I wanted to throw out there at you. But I wanted to encourage you tonight. Because you guys have come out again tonight, and I just can't tell you how much I, I love you guys for doing this. Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14. Romans 6. By the way, it looks like Romans is winning, so I guess next fall we'll be studying the book of Romans. Unless some other book starts to... And Romans is a great book. Don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to it. Therefore, Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not present your members to sin as instruments to be used for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. Love this. For sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under law, but under grace. And being under grace, remember, law couldn't give you the power to rise above. It couldn't give you the power to obey. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. The law was just those words that gave us the standard of God, but never gave us any power. But through Christ and through His grace, we now have the power. So that the Bible says that another aspect of Christ's superior priesthood is He came to put away sin. Meaning He can deprive sin in your life if you turn to Him of its force and power. I hope that encourages you tonight. It should, and it should encourage others as well. God doesn't want you to be defeated. You and I, through His power, can say no to the things we should and say yes to the things that we should. And then one final thing, back to chapter 10. I want to again go back to verse 4. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And that's really what it's all about. That's the power of His priesthood. He not only paid the debt in full... He not only can deprive sin of its power and force in our life, He literally takes our sin away and the Bible says He casts it in the depth of the sea. He takes it away. He takes it away. See, those lambs being sacrificed on the altar in the Old Testament, they couldn't take away sin. It reminded those sacrificing of their sin and it reminded them how... Negatively powerful sin was in their life, and it pointed to the one remedy that God was going to bring on the scene: Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to deal with it one day. but those lambs and those goats and those burnt offerings and those they couldn't take away sin. But Jesus Christ's offering takes away our sin. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ takes away our sins? I stand here tonight. You sit here tonight. If you have Christ in your life as your high priest, you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ because He has taken away your sin. It's huge. And I want you to keep that thought in mind because where we're going for the next few minutes tonight then is all built on what we've just said here in the last... Oh, 40 minutes. <clears throat> Alright. Comments. Questions. It is huge. And it's something we don't think about enough. That positionally, positionally, we are made holy. Now, practically speaking, we all know, well, maybe some of you are perfect in here. I don't know. But practically speaking, we all know that we still struggle with sin here on this earth. But you've got to understand from God's perspective, you're as good as in heaven. Because remember, the priesthood is permanent. That's why when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, as far as God is concerned, it's a done deal. Because it's not dependent upon you or I to keep ourselves right. Right? That's God's obligation. He obligates Himself. You see, that's again another huge difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant under Moses, it was blessings and cursings. And it was dependent upon what I did. And God said to the nation of Israel, If you do these things, I will bless you. If you do these things, you're going to be in trouble. Okay, And it was all dependent. In fact, you can even read in the book of Hebrews, the reason why that covenant didn't work is they didn't continue. <laughs> they were always rebelling. They, they were always going their own way. So God comes along in the New Testament and says, guess what, instead of a bilateral covenant, which is what the Mosaic covenant was, it was what we call a bilateral covenant, the new covenant is a unilateral covenant. Meaning God says, I'm making a covenant with you and it's not dependent upon you. Exactly. Exactly. Thank God it's not dependent upon. Thank God my salvation and my standing before God is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon my high priest. Because I could never be good enough. And even after I become a Christian, I could never measure up to what it takes to be where God wants me to be and where one day He's going to take me to be. Because I can't get there on my own. Only He can take me there. No, I think Melchizedek's order of priesthood is forever because Jesus Christ falls in line with that. Yeah. I I just, speaking of that, you can really impress people with your Bible knowledge if you go around dropping the name Melchizedek. (laughs) Yeah, we we studied Melchizedek the other night. Melchizedek? I can't even say that. What? Yeah, it's in the book of Hebrews. Wow, you must know a lot about the Bible. I'm telling you. Melchizedek is one of those. I'm like, well, Melchizedek, you know. Good, it's good. Yeah. Well, again, no, I think he was a regular guy, and I don't think he just popped on the scene. Again, if you read chapter 7, he was the king of Salem. Salem's Jerusalem. And he was uh, also a priest. And I think he held a role in those days. But I think, again, remember, this is way back in antiquity. And... Uh, I just think it was a, a type. I think that because they didn't have a record of His beginning and a record of... I mean, let's face it. We've got people in modern day, we don't have a record of when they were born and when they died. And we are really good about supposedly keeping records and information and stuff. I think especially back then, it was a And again, could it be Christ? I mean, if, if I had to be pressed and say... Would you be dogmatic and say it absolutely couldn't be Christ? I would say no. I couldn't be that dogmatic about it. But I will say this. The key of why I interpret that He's a type of Christ is that word like in verse 3. When the author says He's like the Son of God, to me that takes all the emphasis from the fact that all he would have to say is yeah, He was the Son of God. He says He's like the Son of God, meaning He was a type of Jesus Christ. And there's some cool things about his life that sort of falls in line with, with Jesus Christ, but he's not an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. But it, it's you know it's something that people have a difference of opinion about. Yes, it sure you know I, I certainly think that Melchizedek was raised up in history for this purpose, that he was to set the precedent for Christ's priesthood by being this independent order of priesthood. Yeah, Salem is an ancient name for Jerusalem. No. Again, we look back to Jesus Christ and to what He did. They looked forward. But again, like Romans teaches in chapter 4, Abraham was saved the same way that we are saved or come into a right relationship with God by faith. And so Paul says, he says to the Jews who, again, were trying to work their way to heaven, he says, you realize that your father Abraham, the founder of your nation, did not come into a right relationship by works, but he believed God, and that was counted to him for righteousness. And once a person places that faith in God, I believe that they were sealed as well. Yeah. I think when I talk about the Holy Spirit coming and going, it was more empowering them for service, but had nothing to do with their standing before God, which may help. That's a good good question. Good stuff. I hope you're encouraged tonight. Okay, I don't want you to go home and go, Oh man, that mine. I'm not coming back to that. <laughs> Alright. Yes. Yeah. Of chapter. Oh. Oh yeah. I might not get there tonight. You might have to come back next week. You know how I do that, yeah. <laughs> Well, only because, here's what I want to get to next, is verses 19 through 25 of chapter 10. Because here's the deal. You realize that chapter 7, 8, 9, and up to verse 19 of chapter 10 was all the stuff that was going to motivate the actions of these next few verses. The practical application of all this information that you and I have went over so far in the mind tonight... It doesn't really get real practical until verse 19 of chapter 10. And here's what he says to us. I'm just going to read the whole passage because he basically just makes three important things here. He lays out three important exhortations to us. Therefore, brothers and sisters. And again, we always say, therefore is therefore for a reason. Everything that I've said in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10 up to this point, therefore... Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that He inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, first, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the assurance that faith brings because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Second exhortation. And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess, for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. Third exhortation, and let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. First of all, let's go back up to verse 19. He says, Guys, this is huge. This is so huge. He says, Here's the deal. When you and I come to that realization that Jesus Christ, the sacrifice, the great high priest, whatever, the Son of... He's taken away our sins. And therefore, we have access to God. We've got to understand how huge that is. And and, and the other thing is, he talks about confident access. The greatest motivation to do something is confidence. If you and I have confidence... We're more apt to do something. When we lack confidence is when we don't have a lot of motivation to do something. Alright? We all know that's huge. Confidence and motivation. He's saying, do you realize that, Christian, you have to remind yourself that the part of the motivation for, for seeking access to God at all times in prayer and coming into His presence is because you should have confidence that you can come in there at any time. And based upon the contrast of the Old Testament, don't forget that only the high priest could enter into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year. Now think about this. How many times today have you as a New Testament Christian entered into the presence of God? And then think about that in contrast to the Old Testament again where not everybody could enter into the presence of God. No, no. Only the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement, Could he enter into the presence of God? But now that Jesus Christ took away our sins and has made this way for us, the writer of Hebrews is saying, take advantage of the access you've got. Do you realize in the Old Testament, they would have literally died to have that kind of access to God? They couldn't have it. You have it through Jesus Christ, your high priest. Take advantage of the access... And always be confident that when you go into His presence, God is never going to shut the door in your face. He's never going to tell you to get out of My presence. Why? Because you and I are going in not based on our own merit and our own righteousness. We are coming into the presence of God the only way that we can, based upon our High Priest and His blood and His sacrifice. And that's why the way is always open to us. As long as you've got Jesus Christ and you will always have Him because He is your priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, you can go into the, to the very presence of God at any time, any place, anywhere, and you can be confident that God is there waiting for you to come. So he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the very sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the key, verse 22, verse 22, then let's draw near. See, here was the problem with these Hebrews that he was writing to here. They had drifted away. Remember chapter 2? They weren't drawing near to God anymore. They were drifting away. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, here's where you can be encouraged, folks. By drawing near to your God. And getting close to him and his heart and knowing how much he loves you, and that can build up your confidence, and then you can have access at any time he 's saying to these hebrews he 's saying, "Guys, you're going through some unnecessary struggle here in your life as far as how you're dealing with your struggle because you're, advan- you're not taking advantage of all the resources God has given you through Christ. You could go into his presence at any time, and you could be strengthened and oh my, I just just draw near." the one thing God wants more than anything else for us to draw near. To draw near. That's why I love this whole thing that we've done here lately on worship. You know, worship is really bottom line—just me drawing near to my God. Me drawing near to my God. And that's what He wants. Because you have this access, draw near to Me. Isn't it sad that God wants to be God wants to be closer to Me than I am to Him? You know, I think, wow, what would I have given in school to be the popular person in the popular crowd, you know, walking with a... And then here's God who says, well, I'll be your friend. Oh no, God, I'm too busy, I, you know. <laughs> it's so dumb, right? It's illogical, and yet, it's what I do. It's like, I've got... God is my friend, and I'm like, oh God, I'm, I'm sorry, God, I just, just don't have time for you. I'm, I'm sorry, you know. He's saying, draw near." He's up there. And then, again, here's what they were doing. Verse 23, they were beginning to waver. They were beginning to doubt God's promises. And, and they were beginning to lose their hope. And so he says in verse 23, and Oh, by the way, if you draw near to God, as you and I should, we're going to trust Him more. Because the closer you get to somebody and you begin to know their heart, You're going to be able and and the closer we get to God, and we know then, as close as we can get to him, that he's got our best interest at heart and he's got our back and all that, we can trust him. So that's why he says then in verse 23, and let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. For why? Because we're trustworthy, because we can put faith in ourselves? No. For the one who made the promise to us is trustworthy. God can be trusted. God can be trusted. I love this. In the uh this one missionary, he he went to this place to give a translation of the Bible. And he couldn't come up with the word in their language for the word faith. And he was struggling, struggling, struggling. And finally one day one of the villagers came in and there was like a, a seating thing there, and he just went like this and went fell back. And he's like that's it. He said What do you call that in your culture when you just come in and just go, you know, and fall back into this like chair or whatever? The guy told him what that word was and he says, that's it. It's just when you and I just fall back into the arms of God, we trust Him so much that we know, like when you do that game where you you might fall back and some people will catch you and some people let you fall, you know. He's saying, but with God, you and I can always fall back and know He's going to catch us. And that's the word he used for the translation of faith in that Bible translation. And then finally, this is so huge, the third exhortation. He says, you and I as Christians, if we get our vertical relationship with God what it should be, if we're drawing near to God and we're holding fast to His Word and we're trusting Him because He's trustworthy, guess what the next thing is? The next thing is then God's going to start getting us to look out and start looking horizontally. That's why the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And when you and I draw near to God, as we should, and then we trust His Word, God's going to begin to get our focus then again off of ourselves, and then take us from that vertical relationship to the horizontal. And that's what He says here in verse 24 when He says, let's take thought, Christians, of how to spur one another greater love and good works." Do you realize what he's saying there? First of all, he's saying, let's be intentional about it. Let's be strategic about it. I've got to get to know, say, Peter a little bit, and build a relationship with Peter, because what may motivate Peter isn't the same thing that's going to motivate Mike. And if I want God to bring me into Peter's life, to be an encouragement to him spiritually, and, and to get him to, to just move further ahead and, and to embrace Christ greater and all of that, I've got to find out what that is because it's not going to be the same. So that's why he says, guys, we've got to take some thought for this. And just like as parents, we don't parent our children the same way, we don't encourage Christians the same way. We've got to build some kind of relationship with them to some point where we know what can motivate them. What can I do to come into their life to spur them on to greater love and greater good works for God. Wow. See, and here's the thing, God doesn't have to use us. He wants to use us. He wants to use us in this world, not just to reach people for Christ. That's huge. And we need to be taking every opportunity we get to witness, but he also wants to use us within his body to encourage other Christians. How many other Christians are out there just like these Hebrews who are discouraged, they're despondent, they're in despair, they're ready to throw in the towel and give up. How many Christians out there are hurting and struggling and all of that? There's a lot of them out there. And he says, guys, take every opportunity you can to encourage each other. And that's why then in verse 25, he says, guess what? It's so sad, it's so tragic that you are abandoning your own meetings. That you are not recognizing the importance of coming together. That's why again, I I don't need to go to church because I can worship God by myself. But you're right. You can worship God by yourself. But that's not the plan that God had. The plan that God had was He built His church so that we could come together as the church and encourage each other. So He's the deal. Don't come to church for yourself. You're supposed to come to church for somebody else. You're supposed to come to church primarily not for what you can get, but for what you can give. We don't hear that a lot today. Because even in the church, we have a consumer mentality. What can the church do for me? Hey, yeah, John F. Kennedy. Don't ask what your country can... It's the same principle. He's saying, look guys, here's the deal. Realize that Christ your shepherd is meeting your needs. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If we're looking to the great high priest to meet our needs, then that frees us to meet other people's needs. And I'm not looking to you to meet my needs, because guess what? You can't meet my needs and I can't meet your needs, but our great high priest can. And as we look to Him to meet our needs, that can free us to meet other people's needs and to look out rather than to always look in. So he says, don't abandon your meetings. I'm not getting legalistic about coming to church. I'm just saying that coming to church or being part of a church like this and coming out as much as we possibly can is just so we can be an encouragement to each other. In fact, one of the big differences of today rather than the church in the book of Acts was they met daily. Because they felt like they needed daily encouragement. Well, I love what Seth said. It is so true that, you know, we have Sunday and Sunday's great around here at Cornerstone. But a lot of people tell me I love the mind and love Bible studies and other things through the week because I can't go from Sunday to Sunday. I get beat up too much during the week. I need some kind of re-energizing during the week. You know? That's... That's this. So here's what he says. Encourage each other. And even more so because you see the day drawing near. I think what he's saying there is, guys, it's not going to get easier. So we need to really focus on seriously encouraging each other even more. And and guys and gals, this is why I do what I do on Tuesday night. Because I know it. We all need encouragement. And I want you who take the time, an hour and 15 minutes out of your very busy lives to come here on Tuesday night to leave here saying, God, thank You for encouraging me through Your Word. I need that encouragement. We all do. And we don't just, once a week, doesn't cut it. <laughs> we need it encouraged every day. As much as possible. So here's the challenge. To be an encourager. To allow our great High Priest, who wants to encourage us, to encourage us so that in turn we can go out there, as Ron said, outside the camp and be an encouragement to somebody else. I love you guys. You are an encouragement to me. You will never know. You are a much bigger blessing to me than I feel like I could ever be to you. So thank you for being here on Tuesday and being so faithful. Alright? I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Give yourselves a hand. Now, i got some good news and bad news before we close tonight. The good news is the mine is going to be meeting next week. We're not going to take another week off because we've got the next two weeks after that off because of the Chandler Spring Break that we follow. So we are meeting next week. But we're not meeting in here. We're meeting up in that room up there. Okay, just for one week. Just for one week. And we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. We had 120 in there one night. You guys survived, so we can do it, alright? Let's close in prayer and I'll let you guys go. Lord God, thank You again so much for encouraging us tonight through Your Word. Through Jesus, Father, we are encouraged. And just remind us throughout this week of all the great things we have through Christ. Take us all home safely tonight, Lord, and just re-energize us, get us back up tomorrow ready to just encourage others And be encouraged by You. And bring us all back next week once again to get into Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are terrific. Have a great evening.